Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. John All. Have a good evening. All right, so um, if you saw the title of this talk, originally I was going to talk about integrated um, environmental systems in um, the Andes and on Mount Everest. And I started putting the show together and I realized that I needed, oh, I was about 250 slides in and figured that was probably too many for this talk. So, <laughs> <laughs> And so I just focused down onto uh, Mount Everest. Um, and that way we can, I mean, it's a beautiful place, really interesting, and it allows us to kind of uh, examine a lot of these topics a little more concentrated, but we'll st still talk about the Andes. So, um, and I'm mainly going to be focused in Nepal. I've also worked in Tibet, um, but again, um, this area is really interesting because, first of all, politically, uh, the people in Nepal say they live between the hammer and the anvil, which is China and India, um, two superpowers who are trying to exert their influence on their neighbors, and Nepal kind of gets ground in the middle um, politically. And then environmentally, because it's between these two superpowers with two billion plus people living in the area, um, things that we learn um, from the Himalayas tell us a lot about both of those uh, countries. So, um, And we're going to be looking at Mount Everest just to kind of give you a little quick geography of the area. So there's three main ridges on Mount Everest, the North Ridge. So this is in Tibet. Uh, I climbed this ridge back in 2009. So you come up this way and shoot this way sampled all the way to the summit. Uh, the other two ridges are the international boundary. So this is the West Ridge, which hasn't been climbed in decades. Basically, it's unclimbable now. It's too, all the snow's melted and disappeared. And then the South Ridge, which is the main access point most people climb up through from Nepal. So Everest Base Camp's kind of over here. And in order to climb that South Ridge, you have to go up this valley called the Western Coom. And then you climb this Lhotse face up to the South Coal. And there's Lhotse here. So I've uh, climbed Everest as well as just finished uh, summiting Lhotse back in June. So um, as I led a team on both Everest and uh, Lhotse. So. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the geography from above. And we're going to be focused mainly on the Sherpa people. This is the indigenous group that's uh, lived around Mount Everest for the last few thousand years. Um, and for the most part, they're involved in kind of the tourism industry, work guiding on these uh, high mountains. Um, but for the most part, the uh, people do agriculture down in the lower valleys and um, come up into the mountains uh, seasonally for grazing um, and in the past for trade uh, with Tibet. And some of them work for just a few dollars a day carrying super heavy loads of over 100 pounds sometimes up these steep mountains. And the reason they'll carry 100 pounds for a few dollars a day is because this is one of the poorest countries on earth. People don't tend to think about Nepal as being poorer than most of the countries in Africa. Um, but this is down in the top, or I should say bottom 20 poorest countries on earth. Uh, the GDP is less than $1,000 a year. So people on average make less than $1,000 a year. And this is the only of probably 100 countries I've been in and worked in country I've ever seen people using an actual water-driven stone wheel to grind wheat. 200-year-old um, technology is still state-of-the-art in some of the remote villages there. So a very, very poor country. And so then where do I fit in this picture? I've been working in Nepal. I taught at Tribhuvan University, which is the main uh, university in Kathmandu. 
Um, and I've been working here for decades. I've brought uh, American students as well as worked with Nepali students into this area to collect data, uh, brought them up onto summits so they can sort of experience what it's like climbing to the top of the world. Um, but sometimes it requires me to go to the summit of Mount Everest or go to the summit of Lhotse, and I don't take students there. And it hasn't always worked out for the best. Let's see if this video works. I'm pretty well. Uh, I fell through that hole. Thankfully, I didn't keep falling that way. I got trapped here instead. For this ledge, my arm I can't use. I'm gonna have to somehow climb out that way. Oh, I can't go that way at all. Gotta stop on this ledge. Oh. 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 Do I get back up there though? Oh. Trying, I fell through that hole. That way, I didn't fall down, thankfully. My right arm is seizing up, I can't use it anymore. I'm gonna try and stem above that, get through that, try and hit that way. Hopefully I can escape. Doesn't look easy, that's my hole I fell through. That's my path, I'm gonna try. It doesn't look easy, but that's all I can do. I don't have a right arm. Oh, so I can't get out this way. It's too soft. I can't talk because I have a broken rib, I think. Or my chest is filling with blood or something. So I fell all the way down there. I've crawled out through here. We're gonna say I can't get out that way. So I'm gonna have to crawl through there, try and climb up out through this thing. Hopefully I can get out. I'm so close now. Oh, I hurt bad. I gotta get out. I can't use my right arm. Oh, I'm so close. It's gonna be so easy. I don't work in your right arm. Oh. Climbed all the way. 
over, up, over. So close. I just gotta go a little further. I can do it. Well, and so thankfully I got out. <laughs> um, and I'll talk more about the fall in a little bit and what we were doing there and everything. But um, the reason I was in that crevasse, it's not an exaggeration, was it's because of the Civil War in Nepal. And so this was one of those things where politics affects you as an individual. So uh, let me talk a little bit more about the Civil War to kind of give you some background. Um, for a past century, Nepal has been ruled by a monarchy, and the Maoist Communist Party started a civil war uh, to fight against the central government. Um, 20,000, 25, 30,000 people died. They don't even know. Uh, really poor records. At least 17,000 are documented. Um, and it was about a 10-year fight, but the Maoists have continued controlling a lot of the country, and they lead um, strikes, they call them. And uh, so the country's government is still unstable and, uh, and difficult. Um, for our purposes, one of the most important things was that the Maoists used the national parks as their bases of operation. So they kicked everybody out, the local people who were in the parks, as well as the park service personnel, and they used those areas as resources and as places to hide during the Civil War. Um, and one group um, that they appealed to um, was the Sherpas. And the reason is because they reached out to the disenfranchised. And the Sherpas in the mountains, the uh, majority of Nepal is Hindu. And so the Buddhists are a minority, and they've been discriminated against throughout the history. Uh, they don't get schools, medical, bridges, roads, anything. Um, basically, the only things that come into these mountainous areas are brought from Switzerland or other countries um, that are interested in climbing. So um, there was a lot of support for the Maoists uh, as part of the Civil War. And so how did I get to that kind of lonely glacier all by myself? Um, it was part of a bigger expedition. We were initially on Mount Everest in order to do climate change and pollution research. And I'll talk more about exactly what we were doing. Um, but we were on uh, in Everest base camp. And remember that Western Coombe I showed you, the valley? So this is that same valley I showed you the map of. So we wanted to sample this valley, sample the snow and ice, and then sample this Lhotse face. Um, and collect samples effectively to the top of the world. Um, so I just recently went up here, crossed right there, climbed up there back in June. So uh, again, up to 28,000 feet or whatever it is. And the reason we care about this is water. The Himalayas supply water for over 2 billion people. And as those glaciers change and disappear, suddenly there's potential for major disruptions of most of the world's population, or a good chunk of the world's population. And so this is what happens when glaciers disappear. So this is Pastoruri. Um, most of my examples are going to be from Peru, just because I've got a lot more work there, and um, there's a lot more research that's been done. So this is a glacier in Pastoruri. You can see here 2001 and 2007, it's disappearing, 2012. Now it's almost entirely gone. There's just a little ball there and a little ball there. And what happens is as these glaciers disappear, for a while there's more water in the streams. The glaciers are melting, they're providing water, everybody has a party. There's more water and they know what to do with. But unfortunately you get addicted to that extra water as a society. And then what happens is as the glaciers disappear, that extra water disappears. And you go back to the old standard from what there was back in the 70s, say. 
But then it gets worse because now you don't have the glaciers to buffer your water supply. So it comes in more pulses. And even worse, the temperatures are hotter. So there's more evaporation. So the net result is at the end, you not only do you not have what you had at the, during the good times, you've got less than you had even during the bad times. And so a society that's become addicted to this much water is really, really in trouble. And so one of the things we need to know globally, um, you know, if California has this very same issue with what's happening in the Sierra. Um, what is happening to these glaciers? Which part of this curve are we on? Are we on the upper part, the descending part, and how can we as a society prepare for it? And so that's what a lot of my work is based around, is how do we understand these uh, glaciers? And so there's a lot of work that's been done on the temperature. Temperature is easy to measure, you can model it, you can do all sorts of things. So um, what I'm doing is going on the ground and looking at something else. What I'm doing is looking at the actual color of the glacier and the dust that's on the glacier. And so just um, the difference between clean snow and just a little bit of dirt on the snow, slight change in the amount of reflection off of the surface. And if you guys have ever been out in the summer here in a black t-shirt, you understand the darker the color you wear, the hotter it's gonna get, right? Well, glaciers have that exact same issue. And so by studying the dust, we can learn, first of all, how much hotter is the glacier getting as it gets covered with dust? And secondly, what's in the dust? So something like, say, um, if it's next to a mine. So this is a strip mine in uh, Peru. And that's one of the reasons that I first started studying this was the government of Peru wanted to know, oh, we've got all these strip mines. What are they doing to our air quality? And once you start studying the air quality, you realize the impact it's not just having on the air quality, but also on the melt uh, uh, rate that glaciers melt. And so what I did was created the American Climate Science Program as a nonprofit, and then that turned into the uh, Mountain Environments Research Institute uh, at Western Washington University. And uh, what I do is work with especially students and professors who've never been in the mountains before, who, but who study these things, so physicists, toxicologists, and other groups, and bring them into the mountains and we collect samples. And so here, for example, there's the strip mine I showed you, and this is the town of Huaraz and so in Peru. And so you've got diesel smoke, other things coming from the town. You've got boron and manganese and cobalt and all sorts of metals coming out of the mine. And they both get deposited here in the snow. And so by taking samples from that snow, we can learn about it. And so again, what my group does, we go out and we collect lots of samples, um, lots of different places. Um, and prior to the, our, my most recent expedition to Mount Everest in Lhotse in uh, June, the highest samples were from about 21, 22,000 feet at most. Um, and this is from over 20,000 feet I'm sampling right here. Um, but this, again, we took it up to the summit of uh, the highest peaks on Earth recently. And so what we do is we collect samples all the way up the mountain in order to look at how different parts of the atmosphere are contributing different amounts of dust um, so we can look at things like wind and so forth. We collect the samples and um, label them, and then haul them down the mountain and um, filter them. So we use a 0.7 micron filter, and we spend a lot of time filtering. It's a really slow process. But what we end up with is a little disk that has the dust that was in that sample. And so now we have a snapshot for a moment in time for a specific location of how much dust is in that place. And by collecting many, many of these things, we can get build a map, both temporal as well as spatial, of how 
the uh, mountains are changing and how these glaciers are being affected by human activities. So here for an example, this is Huascaran Sur, which is the highest peak in Peru. It's like fifth highest or something in South America. And you can see down low where the agriculture is uh, and a lot of the human activity is, a lot of uh, local transport. But then as we get up here to the very summit, um, we start running into uh, more tropospheric or long distance transport. So um, the pollution from there is coming from the Amazon, for example, and from even potentially longer distances. And by looking at things monthly, you can see real clearly here where the farmers start burning their fields. Um, this is in the southern hemisphere, and so they're preparing for winter, and so they burn their uh, fields at the end of the summer to uh, provide, uh, to mineralize the nitrogen. Um, so again, it gives us a temporal as well as a spatial pattern. And then we can take these little disks and we can say, all right, what does that do to the glacier? So this is seven different um, samples. And so this one is one that's basically white. And you can see it doesn't raise the temperature much. But you can see how a very dark sample raises the temperature eight degrees Celsius. And that's at the surface of the glacier. And so again, it's going to have a very big impact on how quickly that glacier is melting as it gets darker and darker and darker. And so then we can, again, take that and expand it out to look at across the entire mountain range. So here is the town of Huaraz that I showed you, and this is the mine. So this is that mountain that I showed you the picture from, looking towards those things. So down in the southern part of the range, uh, we've got a lot of potential pollution sources, right? And so that's going to be the red line is the ones near Huaraz, the ones that are potential pollution sources. To the north is farther from Huaraz, it's far away from the mines, and so it's more localized, just agriculture. And you can see every year that the more distant locations are only about half the pollution. But what's sad is that around 2014, 2015 is when the glaciers died. Um, prior to this, there was sort of steady uh, glacier size, but there were a series of El Ninos, and 2016 was when it was really severe, and basically the glaciers just retracted, and they lost hundreds of feet in just a few years because it started raining on top of the glaciers. And so as all that ice disappeared, um, you just, as you melt, you just concentrate all the pollutants more and more on the surface. And so every time it melts, it just melts faster, and then the next year melts faster. And so the last few years that I've gone, uh, the glaciers have been dramatically receding over time. And this was published in the cryosphere, if you're interested in looking up the paper. Um, so that's kind of the broad picture. We know this is happening in Peru. We know it's happening in the Sierra Nevada. So around the world, glaciers are disappearing. Well, what about the Himalaya? Again, because this is the highest, but it's also 2 billion people. So it's the most important. Um, it, the problem is, in order to sample the Western Coombe, so that valley I showed you is up here. And in order to get through that, we have to go through this Kumbu icefall. So this is a conveyor belt of uh, ice that's moving four feet a day. So it's continually chewing up and grinding and tearing things to pieces. And this is one of the most dangerous parts of the climb, and many people have died in it. Um, just to kind of give you one, I have so many pictures of crazy, scary things. Um, but you know, you're walking on this little tiny six inch wide ledge above a cliff. You got to cross a huge crevasse on this tiny ladder, uh, barely uh, uh, on each thing. I mean, there was like three inches on each set of feet on the ladder and it's hundreds of feet down into the crevasse. So extremely scary thing. And so what 
Sherpas and Westerners alike do prior to climbing is we hold a puja. And here it's a Buddhist ceremony where we ask the mountain, you know, to show our respect and ask, us, ask it not to kill us while we're trying to climb it. Um, and unfortunately, in 2014, when I was there, uh, the mountain didn't listen. And so a huge chunk of ice came off right here, came down, landed on top of a number of climbers and killed 16 people, including uh, one of my teammates and friends. And the reason it killed so many, normally an ice fall like that would only kill a couple people, but what happened was a ladder fell right here. And so they were putting the ladder back up, and while they did, it created this bottleneck. And this was taken just a moment or two before the ice fall, so most of the people in this picture died. Um, and again, my team was, we were right in the middle of it. And so we spent the rest of the day um, trying to figure out who was alive and who was dead. And the helicopter brought down the bodies um, and, you know, we were just sick with grief because we had lost so much. Um, and it wasn't just us. I mean, this was climbers from around the world. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible tragedy, the worst at the time uh, before the earthquake the following year. Um, and so this was part of my team that was there in the middle of the icefall. Uh, Ashman passed away. He left behind a, a young wife and a nine-month-old daughter. And so it was a huge tragedy. Um, but then, and so afterwards, we, we got together, we held our pujas to ask the mountains to bless us again, and we talked about what are we going to do. And most of the climate, you know, because climate change is making it more dangerous to get into these mountains. And so most of the climbers agreed that, you know, well, it's dangerous, but we think the worst is past. We'll reroute the thing, and we're going to continue climbing. Unfortunately, the Civil War um, kicked in and it became a political battleground. And the Maoists, those, again, the Civil War technically is over, but they still controlled a lot of the country. They came to camp and said, we want all the money that's being contributed for families, for the families of the dead, and we're gonna take that money and we're gonna distribute it the way we think is fair, i.e. they were just gonna take it as a bribe. And so, you know, of course, the Westerners didn't want any part of that, and so, um, because we refused to give them the money, they said they were going to break the leg of any Sherpa who climbed. And the Sherpas were, you know, kind of like, well, you can't, screw you, we're not going to. And then they said they were going to break the leg of any Westerners that climbed. And then they actually began beating up people in the night. And so we were all forced off the mountain um, because of the remnants of the Civil War. And so that, that year, no one successfully summited Mount Everest from that south side. Um, and so we, you know, had to pack up our camp. Uh, we were just, again, left a lot of terrible memories behind. But the, the thing was, we weren't there for glory. We were there to, for science. We wanted to know what was happening. And our uh, Nepali uh, people we were working with wanted us to continue doing our research. And so they helped us find a permit for a mountain, Mount Himlung, which had similar characteristics. It was on the border. Uh, and so forth. So scientifically, it wasn't as good as Everest, but it at least gave us some of the critical data that we wanted. Um, and even though we were incredibly sad at the same time, I didn't want Ashman's sacrifice to be in vain. And so uh, we pushed ahead in spite of our grief because I believe once you're committed to something, you've got to follow it through with it. So um, unfortunately, at this point, um, we lost most of our team. And the few, there were only three of us left. And Uliana uh, is here. She got sick. She was a student working on her PhD. And um, so Jake has taken her down the face at this point. 
And there's only about a week left before the monsoon, so just a few vital days remaining before the mountain becomes unclimbable and we can't get any data at all. So I was left with the difficult decision to stay up at Camp 2 by myself at 20,000 feet. And so Jake and I walked a perimeter and thought we had found a safe area where I could collect snow samples and so forth. And so that's what I did. I woke up, just had on a t-shirt and a light jacket, as you saw in the video. I uh, went out to grab some snow to start processing the samples because, again, they take a long time to do. Um, and I was also going to get some snow to boil water and make some coffee. So I was just kind of a quick little jaunt out. So I'm in this bright sunlight. And, um, you know, I went and suddenly, oops, wrong way. And suddenly bright sunlight to pitch black. I mean, I felt the vertigo as I was falling. I knew that, you know, you don't survive falling into crevasse. So I knew I was dead. Uh, one story, two stories, five stories. And then after 70 feet, suddenly I stopped and I was in agony. So that meant I couldn't be dead. If you're in pain, you, you gotta still be alive. So, um, and, but I was just balanced on a little tiny block of ice and my legs were dangling over another hundred feet or more of void. And so I had to climb out and, um, when I had fallen, I had tried to stop myself. I would thrown my right arm out and ripped the whole... In the movies, you can stop yourself with one hand, but you can't in real life when you're free falling. It just ripped my whole arm and broke all the bones and all the shoulders and left bone chunks everywhere. Um, and I'm at 20,000 feet. Has anybody here ever been to 20,000 feet? What's it like trying to breathe? Can you imagine? Have you been at 10,000 feet? Imagine, just make it worse and worse. So every breath was just, <gasps> and you're trying to climb as hard as you can possibly climb. And, you know, I was in agony, and it would have just been so easy just to quit. But it, I looked down, I was climbing, I looked down between my legs and realized that if I fell, they'd never find my body. And I thought about my mom and how that would just tear her up. And, you know, I couldn't do that to her, so I just kept going. Um, and, you know, after hours of mind-numbing pain, I finally got to that last little section you saw in the video, and there was about a foot of snow between me and the surface as I finally get up after who knows how many hours. And so I, I always think about it as I had to dig myself out of my own grave to get to the surface. And then I had to crawl back to the tent. It actually took, it was only a few hundred yards, but it took me a couple of hours to make it back to the tent. And then I had to wait 19 hours till the next day for a helicopter. And the worst part of the ordeal is, I mean, of course, in agony and everything else, broken bones, internally bleeding. Um, but the worst part was I was so thirsty. I was, oh, I just would killed for a glass of water. And I had a Nalgene filled with water, and I could hear it sloshing around, nice and cool. But there is absolutely no way to open a Nalgene with one hand. I used my teeth, I tried to use the ice axe, I was putting it between my legs. It was one of those Dante's levels of hell, just listening to that water all night. Um, but eventually the helicopter did uh, come and the purgatory ended. And I had 16 broken bones. I had broken six bones in my back, six ribs, uh, most of all that whole bone chunks everywhere. Internally was bleeding. Um, you can see my face was smashed up. Um, and my shoulder was so badly ripped out of the socket that it took four people 20 minutes to wrestle it back into place, um, which thankfully after about three minutes of me screaming, they 
put me under, so I didn't feel it all, but <laughs> my friend told me about it. Um, but I'm alive because I didn't quit. And, you know, hour after hour I wanted to, but I wouldn't have seen my mom smile at the end of the day. So I wouldn't be here talking to y'all. And I wouldn't have gotten famous for a while. I put the videos on Facebook for my family and then on YouTube. And before I knew it, it was they were around the world. Uh, Arabic, Chinese, Portuguese. I saw my name in so many crazy languages I'd never thought about. I wrote my book, um, which... It was one of those things where it was a terrible experience, but at the same time, it allowed me to write a book and talk about climate change around the world in Africa and Central America and a lot of other places where I've worked. So how do we collect data? Um, basically, what I do is because I'm taking people out, I'm helping uh, them develop the skills to gather data um, for the students especially. And basically, we just walk in the mountains with a GPS. So um, we take pictures, we go to the summits, and between that, during that uh, journey from the beginning to the summit, uh, we take GPS data and we record what the land use is. So working with local students like Kamal here. Um, and we collect data on the plants. So how are, what, are the, what plants are present? Um, what are the disturbances that are going on and so forth? And then we collect snow samples like you saw and um, collect those again all the way up to the summit. And the reason I work in, I like to work in uh, national parks because they're supposedly protected. And if I wanna look at how climate is affecting the environment, um, I thought, well, I'll just go to Nepal and I'll work in these national parks and it'll be a protected area and it'll allow me to see what's happening. Um, and, and besides they're really beautiful and everybody wants to visit them, so it's really great to get volunteers to help you. Um, but more so in Nepal because they're Buddhist. And so I thought, well, Buddhists they revere life, and so it should be super well protected. And the first or second day I was there in the mountains, I saw them clear-cutting. And this is at the base of Mount Everest in a you know, biosphere reserve and every protection you can give it. Um, they were clear-cutting, and it was a result, again, of that civil war. And so given the civil war and the fact that they kicked everybody out, um, how can we examine what was going on. And uh, GIS remote sensing, so using satellite imagery, allows us, first of all, to look at the country as a whole, so big picture sort of changes. And secondly, it allows students in the United States to help with this process. So um, what we do is we take that satellite imagery and then combine it with ground data. So to give you an idea of what the satellite imagery looks like, um, this is uh, a picture from satellites, so you can see the ice is white, the lakes are blue, the brown rock, a little bit of green for vegetation. But there's no way to quantify that, right? Can anyone tell me how much vegetation is there? Some, a lot. Thankfully, computers are way better at quantifying than we are. So if you run some algorithms, you create a, what's called an NDVI up there at the top. Um, and what it does is it, from zero to one, tells you how much photosynthesis or chlorophyll is present in the picture. So each little pixel, um, you know, if it's really, really bright white, is a big bunch of trees. And then as it gets faded, fades more and more, it's less trees, more grass. And then as it gets really dark, it becomes water. And so water is the other end of the spectrum. And so it goes from pure water to pure plant. And so because now we can quantify it, we can look at how it changes over time. But at the same time, we also still have to go onto the ground and look and see, make sure what we're seeing in satellite is actually what we think we're seeing. So um, we spend a lot of time. So each of these, you can see how they're little points. 
And then the points all come together from all the data I collected. Um, so this is, again, the international boundary. This is Sagarmartha National Park. Uh, so that's Mount Everest. So this is Tibet, and this is Nepal. And again, this is thousands of data points we've collected. Um, in 2009, for example, I collected over 1,800 uh, locations. And I don't want you to be able to read this, but this is just the data I collected each point. So types of vegetation present, um, amount of water, disturbances. So a huge amount of data for each point. And the idea being that I collected it in 2009, and I just went back in 2019. So I have a 10-year record of what's happened for all these points. And so it creates a nice time series. So I'm going to talk about two aspects or two parts of the Mount Everest watershed to give you more detail about exactly what we've been doing. So, so this is Mount Everest. This is that park I just showed you, Sagarmartha National Park. And Makalu, which is the fifth highest mountain on Earth, is kind of right next to Mount Everest. And so there's a park right here called Makalu Barun. You can see Makalu Barun National Park. So I'm going to talk about this park first, which is on the kind of eastern side of the Mount Everest watershed, and then I'm going to talk about this one on the western side of the Mount Everest watershed. And just to give you a sense, so I'm standing on the summit of Everest, looking towards, so this is Makalu, again, fifth highest on Earth, and back in the very background, that's uh, Kenjingchunga, which is the third highest on Earth. So lots of big mountains, really rugged, amazing terrain. And the reason I'm starting with Makalu is because I got incredibly lucky that I created a 10-year time series, and I got lucky because I found a guy who did his dissertation research before the Civil War. And so he went into Makalu, Barun, back when it was really isolated. Uh, no one hardly went there. And again, the Maoist hadn't been there yet. And so he had a before picture. I had an after picture, and now I have a 10 years after picture. And so... Um, that was, that's invaluable. That's one of the things that in science we need desperately is to know, you know, climate change is occurring around the planet. And so what did the planet look like before that? And sometimes we have good records and sometimes we don't. So again, I got really lucky here. And one of the things is when you're working with these very steep environments is you have to break it down by elevation. So because it's so steep, there's so much difference between what's happening at a thousand meters and what's happening at 8,000 meters, um, what, what I typically do is break it down by uh, ecozone or elevation. So that's what you're going to see a lot of maps that kind of look like this. Um, so down here, this is going to be like oak trees or maple trees, um, kind of give you things you're used to. And then these are like needle leaf trees, so firs and so forth. And then this is rock and ice as you go higher. So this is higher in elevation as you go. And it was the same thing when I went into this park, clear cutting, clear cutting. Uh, everywhere. And because of that Maoist uh, occupancy of this area, this was one of their major bases during the entire war. So there were all these temporary structures that they had built everywhere. And all of the houses that were standing, again, this is, was a few years after the end of the Civil War, suppose they had the Maoist propaganda. Uh, there were hammers and sickles painted on all the houses. There was also a lot of burned remnants of old houses. And what they told us was, if you didn't have the hammer and sickle, hadn't paid the bribes, they burned your house and kicked you out of the valley. So at best, or killed you at the worst. So um, again, a very strong mouse presence even uh, when we went back. And so this was one of the first uh, projects I had a student work on. Basically just took uh, satellite imagery before and after. And what you can see is at the lower elevations, again, a lot of clear cutting going on as we saw on the ground. 
But then at the higher elevations, new forest coming in, um, both because of climate change, but also because the local people, the Sherpa had been kicked out. And when the Sherpa left, they took their yaks with them. And yaks eat a lot. And when you take the yaks away, have them stop eating, suddenly there's more vegetation as well. So it's kind of a, a interaction. All this whole story I'm gonna tell you is an interaction of humans and climate change together impacting the environment. So that was Makalu Barun. Again, uh, kind of heavy uh, Maoist influence. Now we're gonna shift over to uh, Sagarmartha itself. And this is where all of the climbers go. Edmund Hillary, when he first did the first ascent and so forth of Everest. Um, this is Everest kind of looking down from the north. Um, and then from the side, again, I, I show lots of pictures of Everest because it's such a beautiful mountain. Uh, really great climb. And now let's go back to that Sagarmartha National Park. Hopefully you recognize the shape. Um, and we can see the same thing. Again, um, the mountain, the Mount Everest is up here, but you can see down here, we got the broadleaf trees, again, the kind of oak maple type trees. And then as we go up, we get more of the needleleaf trees. But overall, it's just a lot more glacier. So see, this, all this purple is kind of deep glacier. And one of the biggest problems with working in Nepal is I told you how poor it was, and that means there's no real data. And so I went into Kathmandu to the national government. I was like, how many people go have visit uh, Mount Everest every year? They were like, uh, we don't know. <laughs> so I went to another office. I went to the Department of Forestry. How many people visit Mount Everest every year? We have no idea. And I went to four or five offices. No one had the slightest idea how many people visited Mount Everest. I finally found this. As you walk into the park and they check your permit, somebody writes on the wall how many people have visited that month. And that, this is the only source of data to this day of how many people are in, uh, have visited the park. So every time I go and visit it, I take a picture and it, you know, each year it goes. <laughs> and so, again, that's, that's the data we have to work with. So we spend a lot of time interviewing people as well. So this is two students from uh, Tribhuvan University, so Nepali students, interviewing people in a tea house uh, to try and get more information as well. And, of course, we have our satellite imagery. Again, I showed you now we can measure how much chlorophyll is present. And so if we look at two years ago of chlorophyll and this year's chlorophyll, we can see differences. So I had another student go through and just look at, uh, so this is Betula's birch and AB's is fir. So this is a birch for, fir forest, about 4,000 meters or so. So 14, 12 to 14,000 feet. And you can see in the winter, trees don't grow much. That doesn't change <laughs> even with climate change. But in the summer, there's been a slow increase in the amount of growing as the growing seasons lengthened over time. And um, so we can, again, compare year to year um, another student looked at how is the uh, creation of the park affected uh, overall vegetation. And so, again, this is the total amount of pro, uh, photosynthesis that's occurring in the park. They created the park back in the 70s. So when they created it, the protection worked um, for a decade or more. Um, the park slowly, there was less grazing, there was less clear-cutting. The park boundaries were working. And then during the Civil War, the park boundaries quit working. Uh, more cutting, more grazing, more impacts, negative impacts. And then at the end of the Civil War, you can again see how the park is recovering and continuing to grow. Um, oops, wrong way. I always hit the wrong thing. 
Um, so again, looking at the different ele elevational classes, I told you how by looking at different elevation, we can compare different ecosystems and how they're being impacted. So again, this is the elevational classes. I think it's funny that just this little part is the only part that's below 10,000 feet. The whole rest of the time, you're above 10,000 feet. Um, and this is um, 14,000. So this is like almost 14,000 feet. So anything outside of these two colors is basically over 14,000 feet. Um, so you can see we spend months and months at 15, 16,000 feet working. But what's interesting is, again, we take this and we break down vegetation by elevation. And what we find is that that below 10,000 feet doesn't change. They were using it for agriculture before. They're using it for agriculture every year over those 10 years of data. But the, and then at the glaciers, the high glaciers above 20, 21,000 feet, they haven't changed over time. But what has changed is these middle ones. So over time, it's slowly, there's more and more vegetation present. At higher elevations, above 14,000 feet, there's more and more vegetation present over time. And so climate change is have, sending a strong signal right here. And it's pretty dramatic. Five to 6,000 meters, so this is over about 16, 17,000 feet to about 20,000 feet. So this is where the glaciers are disappearing. So down here is where you have lots of glaciers and as they begin melting, you have more vegetation. Um, so you're changing um, glaciers for bare soil and then eventually for vegetation. And so we can see this happening at different speeds at different elevations. And this is again why studying in Nepal is so critical. And to, to further our understanding, we did a lot of interview data and we found all sorts of different things that were interesting. Um, we did, can see, we again, was working with Nepali students as well as American students throughout lots of different landscapes. And among the different things that we found, the one that was probably most striking was this graph. If I had done this study back in the 80s or earlier, um, this graph would have shown 99% Sherpa. The entire population of the area used to be Sherpa. Now it's less than two-thirds. And the reason is because the Sherpa are making their fortune. They go out, they guide for a while, they run a tea house, and then they make enough money. And the second they reach some threshold of money, they leave. And the reason for that is because there's no schools, there's no hospital, there's nothing for their children. If they want their children to ever have anything better, they have to go to Kathmandu. And so that's the goal of every Sherpa, is to make enough money to leave and take their children to Kathmandu so they can go to school. And so that transition, what that means is you've got a lot of people, the Sherpa, who are used to living at high elevation. And the Rai, the Tamang, these are from people at lower elevation in Nepal who are moving in to provide labor, and they don't have the same understanding of how the system works. And so they have a lot bigger impact on the environment as a result. And so the last thing I want to show you, this was developed by a Nepali student who came to the U.S. to work with me, and then he ended up getting a Ph.D., and he now is a professor in New York. Um, and this is land cover change. We're going to look at how, um, as you have valleys and grazing, you end up with things like landslides. So see how this is, was grass, turns to dirt. So that's what we're going to talk about, is how the land cover changes. And so the, what we did was, first of all, took the satellite imagery and broke it up into several different classes. So agriculture houses, basically. Broadleaf, so the oak forest. Needle forest is like a pine forest. Rock, soil, bare soil. Grass, so kind of meadows, lakes, and glaciers. 
right? And so I can give you the raw numbers from um, basically 1990 to 2000 to 2006, kind of throughout the time period of the Civil War. Um, but what's more interesting is look at the changes. So what this graph is showing you is if it's ag houses and ag houses, you'd expect it to change, say the same, right? And, but what's happening here is so broadleaf trees, the forest, only 40% of them are still broadleaf forest eight years later. What happened to them? They became grass. Mixed forest, only 50% is still mixed forest. What happened to it? It became grass. Needle forest, 65% is still forest. The rest of it became grass. Forest to grass, what is that? It's clear cutting. Shrub and grass, a lot of it became rock and soil. What happened? Landslides. And I'll show you pictures of all these. But we did have some rock and soil that became grass. And that's where the glaciers have retreated, created new ground, and uh, grass has begun growing there. So it's a transition. The other thing that we had was uh, your snow and glacier becomes rock and soil. What's that? Melting glaciers. And you can see the same pattern repeated from 2000 to 2006. Again, broadly forest, clear cutting, clear cutting, clear cutting, landslides, more growth, and then the uh, uh, glaciers getting smaller. So the same sort of pattern. And so just to show you what these look like, so again, this is the area around Namche Bazaar. So you can see it goes from being dirt, I mean, the, it goes from being grass to dirt. Uh, this is a protected area, a, a Buddhist shrine, so you can see the forest is still there. Um, so this is the area around Tingboche Monastery, and the path goes through here. And so this area used to all be forest. Actually, the first time I visited it, it was all forest, and now it's been clear-cut. Um, so this was grassland, and then you can see it's collapsed, and uh, now it's bare soil. And then, of course, the glaciers are melting and becoming soil. So that's the pattern, that's the uh, overall numbers, but it's really interesting when you look at the patterns. So this orange is what was glacier and now is bare soil. And you can see that the glaciers are melting throughout each of these high ridges. Um, and again, this is from 90 to 2000. And then the green is where um, the bare soils become vegetated. And same thing, you can see that pattern, the glacier's melting and then right on the edge of it, you're having vegetation growing. And then the reds are the grass to rock soil. So the, the bright red is the landslides and this darker red is the clear cutting. And you can see that's occurring down lower in the valley along where all the villages are. So it's a fairly clear pattern near the villages, clear cutting, landslides, Away from the villages, we've got glacial melt and more green. And the same pattern from 2000 to 2006, even more melting at higher elevations of the glaciers, and, but at the same time, more growth at all these boundaries. And then again, along the corridors where the valleys are, or where the villages are, still clear-cutting and before um, landslides. So the same pattern we saw in Makalu, but just clearly, more clearly defined. Um, so kind of created this model. So snow and glacier become lakes or it becomes rock and soil, both climate change driven. 
But then rock and soil can become shrub and grass, and that's driven by climate change. Or <laughs> shrub and grass can become rock and soil based on overgrazing. Forested areas can either become shrub and grass or potentially bare soil, depending on how steep they are when they get clear cut. Again, that's going to be due to human activities. And then ag and settlement is where shrub and grass and forested area usually end up. As there's more and more people, as there are more and more settlements, all of it is becoming there. So we end up with this model of land cover change for the area. And so I've given you guys a whole bunch of different data, a whole lot of different projects students have worked on. Um, at the end of the day, we know that there's positive and negative impacts. It's affecting the society. Uh, the Civil War is affecting these things. Um, and we just, the more expeditions we uh, do, the more we learn. And so, again, that's what I've, since I crawled out of that crevasse, I sort of had to ask myself, what is my future? What is it I want to do to make a difference? And my future is training young people to become that next generation. Uh, helping them, you know, reach for the sky. Um, I'm coming down, they're kind of going up. <laughs> and um, so that's, that's kind of the future. And so what are we trying to do? We're trying to co create more coordinated expeditions, having geologists and toxicologists and other people together uh, teaching students, uh, linking with the locals, bringing Nepali uh, scientists and researchers, bringing uh, Peruvian scientists and students into the field. So our goal is to, through the Mountain Institutes, to train 75 people a year um, to understand the mountain science, but also how societies are interacting and the skills to avoid ever falling into a crevasse like I did. So um, unfortunately, one of the problems, of course, now is research funding, and especially funding for this type of training for students is very difficult to come by. So we're always asking people if you have any ideas or any desire to help us raise money to increase that student participation. because. I, so I have probably about 10 to 15% of my students now are homeless. Um, they live in vans. Some of them live in tents in the parks. Um, it's amazing how the cost of education has really driven students to the edge. And so anytime we can raise any funds to help students get out into these uh, places, I try and encourage people. So um, yeah, so that's what we're doing. Um, I guess I've almost run out of time, so any questions? <laughs>